Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Over the last few months, a large chunk of my conversations have veered towards a single topic. After a while, I got a little obsessed with the topic, and I started asking people about it directly. That generally elicited sighs and groans and comments that sounded a little like this. I feel furious. That's about it. That's all I can describe it as, is just pure fury. I feel very um, claustrophobic. I feel angry. You feel a little bit impatient. Uh, It's really stressful. I am initially angry, and then I settle in and say, turn up the tunes, get Spotify going, and just relax. It's either that or take a Xanax, and I don't have a prescription yet, so... Those were commuters we tracked down in Atlanta and Chicago. And they're talking, of course, about traffic, something that affects the health, mental state, wallets, family life, and work options of so many Americans. Which kind of makes you wonder, could traffic be fixed? Or is it just destined to trap us in our cars for more and more time each year? There's general agreement that congestion in our major urban areas is getting worse. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. His focus is traffic. And he says if you live in or near a major urban area, you probably spend a chunk of your day in gridlock. Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., that metropolitan area, San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, Atlanta. In general, the bigger and denser a city you are, the more traffic congestion your roads have. Rush hours have expanded as we try to avoid driving at the worst times of day. Stress has grown as people grapple with the unpredictability of traffic. So one day it could take 30 minutes to get to work and the next day it takes 50. And the costs don't end there. One of the most underappreciated impacts of traffic congestion is the pollution that results from it. When vehicles are idling and moving slowly or just going stop and go at around 10 to 15 miles an hour, they emit much more pollution. Uh, They emit more carbon, which sort of matters for climate change and sort of these global concerns. But at a local level, they're likely to emit much more sort of what we call local emissions or or local pollutants like fine particulate matter or benzene and things like that. And these have been strongly associated with increases in asthma, increase in other respiratory diseases, uh, increases in cancer, and most especially increases in uh, premature birth and low birth weight. Those costs, Manville says, are mostly borne by people whose homes are between 500 and 1,000 feet from the congested road, which means that not all of the costs associated with traffic are paid by people who drive a lot. It's the drivers who suffer from lost time. It's the drivers who suffer from stress. It's the drivers who suffer from most crashes. But you also have people who just live near freeways, and those folks tend to be uh, much lower income than the population at large, and they breathe very polluted air. Naturally, Manville has spent some serious energy thinking about how you make traffic better, noticeably better. Now, politicians also say they want to make traffic better, but Manville argues they've tended to embrace solutions that the evidence doesn't quite bear out. Certainly the most long-standing approach to fighting traffic congestion has been to build more roads. Right, and that could be building entire roads, which we don't do very much anymore, or it could be widening existing roads, which was very, very popular in sort of the last decades of the 20th century, and we still do some of, much more in some parts of the country than others. But like, you know, out in L.A., we now, the 405 freeway 
is now something like 16 lanes, and that is the, the result of progressively adding lanes to deal with its chronic congestion. If you add a lane, and then as a result, the traffic starts moving faster, because it does. You know, if you, if you add some capacity, then in the short term, the traffic is going to start moving a little bit more quickly than it did. But what that does is it makes driving more attractive on that road. And so within a matter of a few weeks or a few months, the improved traffic has convinced more people that, hey, the roads aren't so bad. And once that happens, they're terrible all over again. But there are other solutions politicians have touted, like improving public transportation. Manville says public transportation is a great thing, and investing in it often makes sense. But will that investment help traffic? So I think the easiest way to answer that is to just think of the places in the world that have the most comprehensive, sophisticated public transportation systems. Everybody probably has their own list, but what comes to mind for me are Tokyo, London, New York, Hong Kong, some of the other big European cities, Paris. They all have terrible traffic congestion. So, okay, if that's not going to work, how about creating more dense, affordable housing in the city or just right outside it so that everybody doesn't have to trek in from a low-density suburb? Manville says that's not going to work either. Again, think about big, dense places like New York City. Has that density solved their traffic? Not so much. Also, just as a side note, trying to convince people not to live in suburbs is kind of a heavy lift. There's a saying, I, I forget exactly where it came from, that says that you know, trying to change transportation by changing the organization of sort of American society is like uh, moving a picture by moving the wall. So how could we deal with traffic? Michael Manville from UCLA says, if you really want to figure out how to curb demand for something, you've got to understand how it works. Something to understand about traffic congestion is that as a phenomenon, it's nonlinear, which is to say that the majority of the delay or a substantial proportion of the delay is caused by sort of the last few vehicles entering the road. Hmm. And so you can just imagine that if you're driving on a road at midnight and nobody's on it, uh, and then one other person gets on the road with you, neither of you are slowed down. Mm-hmm. Right? So the road can absorb a lot of people up to a certain point without really slowing anyone down. Once you get past that tipping point, however, each additional vehicle results in a lot more delay. Hmm. And so you can have situations where a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, the population is growing but not that much, but you only need to add in places where the roadway system was already under so much strain. You only need to add a few more vehicles at peak hours to really see fairly sizable increases in delay. When you think about, and I'm sure people ask you all the time, could traffic get better? Could it? Is there anything we can do about the awful traffic? Absolutely. Okay. What can we do? Uh, The one thing that will work, the only thing that has ever worked, is to price our roads. Okay. Does that mean like having turnpikes all over the place, toll roads? Yeah. So uh, it's a very specific type of toll that's called a congestion charge. And it is a dynamic toll, which is to say that the level of the toll rises and falls based on the demand for the road at a given time. And so it might look a lot like a toll gantry that you see on many toll roads in the United States, you know, with an easy pass or something like that that you drive Mm -hmm. under. But it is not designed 
to raise money, which is what most toll roads in the United States right now are designed to do. They just raise some revenue either to pay for the cost of building the road or to defray overall government costs. This is a toll that at 8 in the morning, when lots of people want to be on the road, it's higher. At midnight, it's lower, and it might in fact be zero. That the sole purpose of the price is to allocate the road space so that it works. It's sometimes called performance pricing, because rather than the government saying, well, we want to raise this much money from this road, what they say instead is, we want this road to flow at 55 miles an hour. That's the performance standard. And the price can rise or fall. The price can float to meet that standard. It almost sounds like, you know, there's a fair amount of demand for gold. Like a lot of people would like to have gold. And so it's pretty expensive to buy it if you want it. And I feel like you're saying, like, it's very desirable to be on the road at 8 in the morning. So we're going to charge you a lot for that because there is a lot of demand for this thing. Absolutely. And you don't even have to think about it as gold. You can think about it for what it actually is. A freeway going into a major metropolitan area, right? A a freeway going into New York City, going into central Atlanta, going into downtown Houston, the 405 into LA. That's just, it's land. It's real estate. And if you look at the price of the surrounding land in all those places, you know, it's, it's often some of the most valuable land in the world. Right, right. That if you wanted to occupy a piece of land in New York City or Los Angeles, you would pay a lot of money. But if you had a car and you wanted to get onto some publicly owned land at eight in the morning, it would cost you nothing. You know, anyone who has ever suffered through an economics class knows that when you control the price of something, when you hold the price of something down below what sort of the market rate is, one of the results you get is a shortage. And congestion is basically just a shortage of road. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Michael Manville, a professor at UCLA and an expert on traffic. Okay, so I think the first question that most people would have listening to that is like, well, that's an an interesting idea and it might reduce traffic. But here's the thing. I live 45 minutes out the side of the city. I have to get into the city and I cannot be paying like $10 every day to go in. So one of the objections absolutely that people have when they hear about congestion pricing is they look at a crowded freeway in their city and they just say, my goodness, you know, there's thousands of people on this road. We would have to get rid of hundreds, if not thousands of them, to make it go faster. The, the toll would have to be astronomically high. Uh, and I think it's true that in some areas at some times, tolls could be quite high. But I think it's also important to remember that a congested road, most of the delay on it comes from the last few vehicles, Right. It's that, again, this idea that congestion is a nonlinear phenomenon. This is sort of a a rule of thumb, but you would really only have to have a toll high enough to get sort of like four or five percent of the drivers off. And that could lead to something as large as sort of a 15 to 20 percent increase in speed. So you would get a, a very noticeable increase in traffic speeds just from removing those last few drivers. Now, again, in some places, Getting rid of that proportion of drivers might require a high toll, but I think in many places the toll would not be super high. What do you do about the fact that for somebody who's making like 300K a year, great, they they can pay the toll and they can get to work faster and it it all is wonderful. And for somebody making $30,000 a year, they can't really afford the toll, but they've got to get to work and nothing is working about that situation. 
I think, I mean, that's a very real concern, but I, I would say it's a concern even when the roads are free, right? I mean, driving by itself is expensive. You know, if you're rich, it's easier for you to buy a nicer, more comfortable car. It's easier for you to pay for insurance. You can buy gas more easily. The inequality that is implied by sort of we're going to charge for access to roads is not the only inequality that exists in urban travel, right? It's good to be rich, right? I mean, things are easier when you have more money and things are harder when you have less. But the nice thing about a congestion charge is that if it does impose a sort of equity burden, a burden on lower income people, it also comes with a built-in solution to that problem, which is that it raises a lot of money. And so if the rich people want to just pay and they don't sweat it and they go on their merry way driving and you have some set of folks who are uh, well off enough to be able to drive, but not so well off that the toll isn't a big problem for them, well, we can use some of that revenue to help them out. And this is not unprecedented. Right now, if you look at the rest of our urban infrastructure, we regularly price water and gas and heating oil and electricity Mm -hmm. and so forth. Not for nothing, there's a reason why we don't have chronic shortages of those goods. We don't have blackouts every day. We don't have the toilets back up every day. We don't have massive shortages of heating fuel every day. A big part of the reason for that is that we allocate those things by price. Right. We don't say you can have as much electricity as you want, go for it, and just see how it works out. Exactly. And And so we understand that to efficiently allocate those vital pieces of infrastructure, um, we need to price them. We also understand that putting those prices in place can be a big burden for some folks who don't have a lot of money. And that's why virtually every state, every utility has some sort of lifeline program where they take money paid by folks who can afford it and use it to help subsidize access to the goods for people who uh, have less money. There is absolutely no reason that we couldn't do the same thing with congestion prices. How do you know it works and where has it been tried and like where could I go to see this? Okay, so I think there's two ways to think about this. One is that if you just think conceptually about what traffic congestion is, then you, you understand that pricing is the only thing that solves that problem. So again, if you understand that congestion results because a very valuable asset is underpriced, and so as a result, too many people want to use it at a particular time, then just logically, the only thing that is going to re- ameliorate that is making it more expensive at that time. Mm-hmm. So that's like sort of just the the logical or conceptual uh, basis behind it. If you want to see it in action, Singapore has used some version of congestion pricing since 1975, I believe. Wow. And it has used sort of more sophisticated electronic road pricing since the late 1990s or early 2000s. Uh, Singapore is a very dense city. It's denser than San Francisco. Its freeways move pretty consistently at 55 or 60 miles an hour. You can also see examples of this along certain what we call high-occupancy toll lanes throughout the United States. The SR-91 roadway in in Orange County, for instance, is a great example. It's a congestion-priced roadway that sits in the middle of a free freeway in Orange County. And during rush hour, you will see traffic snarled in the free lanes and zipping right along at 55, 60 miles an hour in the priced lanes. A variant of congestion pricing is it at work in places like London and Stockholm, where driving into the center 
of the city. And this is not freeways, but this is driving into the downtown. You incur a charge to do so. Uh, and that has been very successful as well. The first day of London's congestion charging traffic delay went down by about 35%. So New York City has now decided to try a form of congestion pricing. This seems like the first kind of really big experiment in the U.S. around this idea. Um, it's not going to start till 2021. Um, just give me a sense of like what they're going to do as in insofar as like they know what they're going to do. I know some of the details are still being hammered out. Right. So New York has attempted on a number of different occasions before to try and have a, a, essentially a variant of London or Stockholm style court and pricing. Um, there have been different plans that have been floated to do this that involve uh, driving over certain areas, uh, you know, driving over certain boundaries in Manhattan would incur a charge. Also, uh, changing the way the bridges and tunnels are told to more effectively manage traffic congestion. Right now, the prices on the bridges and tunnels are in some ways designed to do the exact opposite. And cordon pricing, I assume, is just like, if you want to get into this area of the city, it's going to cost you. Exactly, yeah. So what London has is known as a cordon charge, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Planners draw a cordon, a boundary around a certain area that they consider very congested. As you drive over it, you pay a toll. And so most likely, you know, New York has a lot of planning to do between now and when their pricing program begins in 2021. When the initial legislation was passed, the specifics of that plan were somewhat vague, and I think they're going to hammer a lot of things out. But I would not be surprised if what does ultimately come through is some sort of variation on what's happening in London and Stockholm, as well as combinations of some of these earlier plans never went anywhere. So most likely what you will see is a charge levied, probably varying by time of day, uh, to drive into certain parts of Manhattan. Does that mean, uh, do you think, that like it's going to discourage people from driving into especially in lower Manhattan, because that's where this charge is going to be. Um, and does that mean like the speed, the average speed that people are going uh, on the roads in lower Manhattan goes up? Like it was eight miles an hour, let's say, and now it's 15 miles an hour. They're just going faster. So, yeah, you could see an increase in speeds. I mean, I think that one of the things congestion does, of course, is it slows everyone down. And what makes uh, cordon charges interesting is that congestion can be really crippling in a dense downtown area, you know, as it was in London, as it was in Stockholm. At the same time, you know, our vision for dense downtowns is usually not that we want vehicles traveling like it's a freeway. And I think if you look at what happened in London, one thing that's interesting is that they got speeds up, but then immediately took some steps to slow them down, right? They did a lot of traffic calming. They took advantage of the fact that congestion was no longer the headache it once had been and used it to build, in many ways, a much more multimodal, human-scaled area with more bicycle lanes, wider sidewalks, traffic-calmed areas that made pedestrians feel safer. And so congestion pricing sometimes in a dense downtown uh, is designed to not only help our vehicles move more quickly and efficiently, but also give us some breathing room away from the political pressure of congestion to remake our cities in a way that, that serves all travelers better. And that makes it quite different from when we say we just want to a price a freeway where the goal is, you know, more unambiguously, we would like our vehicles to be moving faster. So is this a sign to you that maybe, you know, the winds have changed, that, you know, in the past, politicians wanted to say, the solution's easy. 
We just add a lane. If we add a lane to the 405 in L.A., that'll totally fix things. Or the solution is we put some more money into public transportation or we do this or that. And maybe those things had positive effects, but it tended not to solve the traffic problem. Are we in a place where people realize the only thing maybe that we can do is just charge people for being on the roads? Uh, well, much as I would like to say that, I think old habits die hard. Um, so I'm not going to make that prediction. I would say two things. One is that it's for people like me, it's incredibly encouraging that New York is doing this because it is the first example of an American city actually taking some road space that was free to use for drivers and saying, actually, we're going to manage it with prices. The second thing, though, is a beyond New York it sort of sets a message in that someone else is doing this, right? One of the biggest obstacles to policy innovation in the United States or anywhere, I think, is that no one really wants to go first. Going first is a big risk. If you fail the same way everyone else has failed, by adding a lane or building a a new rail system or something like that, then you can at least cover yourself by saying, like, well, we were just doing best practices. If you make a new mistake that's all your own, there's a lot more political risk in that. And so I think it helps other places that are considering congestion pricing, right? And right now, in various states of debate, congestion pricing is on the table in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Massachusetts. It helps those discourses and dialogues and debates for people to be able to say, New York is doing this. Is that because, you know, when you say like all these, a ton of big cities are now thinking about this, I mean, the last thing politicians want to do is say, here's, we're going to charge you some more money. That's, you're, you're, you're happy with that, right? Um, no politician wants to do that. That's like a recipe for failure, I feel like. Absolutely. Um, is, is, are all these discussions happening because traffic has reached such a sort of painful level in places like Los Angeles and Seattle and San Francisco and Boston and New York that, that even though losing money is painful, what is happening to cities is even more painful. I think that's a big part of it. I think there's two trends that are converging a little bit in these big cities. One is, just as you said, uh, the congestion is arguably as bad as it's ever been, maybe at its worst. Congestion is hard to measure, but you could make that argument. But the second point, which is interesting, is that a lot of these cities just feel like they need revenue, and they feel like they have tapped out their politically feasible sources of revenue. So one of the more interesting things about New York's program is that it was largely motivated by a desire to find money to bail out the subway. And so I think people who are proponents of congestion pricing have to walk this very fine line, Hmm. which is that understanding that the real benefit of pricing is reducing congestion and that it should not be a program whose main purpose is to raise revenue. At the same time, uh, that does seem to be, unsurprisingly, why elected officials are drawn to it. Yeah. Right. I think that if I would guess that if folks in New York thought they could bail out their subway system without pricing their roads, they would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they may have reached a point where they realize they can't. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. His research focuses on traffic. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. One more song about You heard from some commuters in Atlanta and Chicago at the beginning of this segment. 
Well, we asked those folks, what would the world look like without traffic? <laughs> I cannot imagine a world without traffic. So are we talking about the Tesla uh, super underground tunnel train? Because bring it on. <laughs> Although it seems kind of Jetson-ish to me. I cannot imagine a world without traffic. Mm, that's a good question. I, I feel like probably more people from the city would probably live out there if they didn't have to deal with those type of commutes. Wow, Chicago would be absolutely amazing. I, I love the city, but it's so car-centric. Um, it's really frustrating. I feel like that would be what world peace would feel like. <laughs> We've got lots more about Manville's idea of congestion pricing, how it works, places where it's been tried. That's at innovationhub.org.